Hey, let me ask you, how do you ever know if something is real? Like, how do you, how do you know when, when something is authentic or if something is genuine? You know, maybe you're, you're on eBay and you're looking at something or you're on Craigslist and you're wondering, you know, I, I, I want to buy that. The price seems right, but I just don't know if it's real. How, how do you tell? What, what, what's the way to truly know? A few years ago, Courtney and I were at the beach, and we were able to sneak away for a little while. We were on vacation, and we were walking around the shops. Anybody ever do that? You guys kind of get out. You start looking around the shops a little bit, and you start to see some of the little things you can take home, some of the, maybe the beach jewelry. Or you're going to get one of those cool hats, you know, with the brim or all of those things. So we're out looking around, and I, I was walking through this one shop, and I had a, you know, it wasn't a nice watch. It was like a, like a, a fossil watch. It was a good little watch, and, so I got the watch on, I'm walking around, the guy behind the counter is like, hey, hey, come here for a second. Yeah, I see your watch. You like watches? And I'm like, well, yeah, who doesn't like watches, right? And so I walk back there, and he pulls out a Rolex, and he sets the Rolex right in front of me, and it was gold, and it was beautiful, and it was shiny, and I was like, ooh, this is, this, can, can I see that? You know, this is kind of nice. And so I don't know if you guys know anything about Rolexes. I d- didn't really know much about them, but if you go on their website, the classic Oyster Perpetual Rolex is about 6000 bucks, Right? About the you know, price of a car, right? Seriously. And so you know, I go in there, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is nice. Well, how much is this Rolex? And the guy looks me up and down. He goes, for you, 500 bucks. And I'm like, you know, I make a big deal about it. I'm like, Whoa, no way. That's an amazing price. Yeah, thank you. Man, you're so generous and so kind. But I'm sorry. I'm going to have to pass. You know, sorry about that. But, you know, I, I looked at that Rolex, and I could tell it was fake. I knew it was a Rolex. I knew it wasn't authentic. I knew it wasn't genuine. How could I tell? Because who's going to sell a $6,000 watch for 500 bucks? Now, I probably could have talked him down, right? Got him down to maybe 100, you know, and then maybe then we could have talked about it. But I knew it wasn't real. You see, I think in life it's easy for us to see things and kind of judge by the price that that isn't real. That's not authentic. That is fake. But how do we tell in other areas of our life? It's not so easy in other areas. I mean, I think we all want real relationships, but how do you know when you're starting into a new friendship or you're starting to date somebody that it's going to be real, that it's going to be authentic? How do you know when you take that new job and everything sounds almost too good to be true? It sounds like it's perfect that it's going to be genuine, that it's not a bait and switch. How do you know when you go put an offer in on that house and the price just seems so good that there's not something underneath the subfloor that's getting ready to burst. Like, how, how do we tell if it's authentic or if it is genuine? It's hard. But, but what about our faith? What, what happens when it comes to our faith? How do we know and how do we tell when our faith is truly real? The last few weeks, we've been in a study called Get Real, and we're looking at the book of James, and we see that James is talking about what real faith looks like and what real faith is. And how we can live out our faith in a real way. And James gives us these pictures and he gives us these um, concepts on how we can identify if our faith truly is real. But it's not necessarily a buyer's guide that James gives us to tell us how to know if somebody else's faith is real. What James is really getting at is how to know if your faith is real. So how do you tell? Anybody ever been to an orchard before? Any, any, any fruit? Any of you guys like fruit? 
You know, I read somewhere the fruit's good for you. You guys should eat some. But I, I, we went on vacation a few years ago, and there was like all of these orchards everywhere. And I was like, man, I want to stop in and pick some apples or, or whatever it may be. Maybe you're driving down I-70 West to Grand Junction or Moab, and you see all the, the Palisade peaches, right, the groves right there. It's beautiful. But how do you know what kind of tree it is? Somebody give me the answer. By its fruit, right? So I'm going to test you fruit lovers real quick. Okay, so real quick, let's see, see who can go three for three. What kind of tree is this? Apple tree, okay. A couple of you got it. It's good. What kind of, how about this one? Orange trees. Okay, how about this one? Lemon tree. Who's going lemon over orange, by the way? Good. You guys are all same. That's good. That's good. Okay, so how about this tree? What do you think? Anybody know? It's actually an apple tree, but why can't you tell? There's no apples on it, right? The way you can tell a tree is by its fruit. And the same goes with our faith. The Bible talks over and over again about the way that you can tell and see if your faith is real, it's by fruit, by the fruit in your life. It comes by inspecting your life and looking at your life and seeing what's coming out of your life and by asking the question, does what you see on the outside of my life match what I think is going on in the inside? See, the Bible says if you want to know it's, if your faith is real, if it's authentic, it's true, then you have to look at what comes out, not just what you think is going on on the inside. Notice how James says it. James chapter 2, verse 14. James says this. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Notice verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Forefront, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to come together, to bring the church together inside of these walls. I, I, Lord, I, I'm so excited for the four families that we uh, dedicated their little ones this morning. And we're just asking and anticipating, Lord, for you to go ahead of us and to move in their lives, to move in a mighty way, and to use them to be the people that you created them to be. Father, we, we thank you for uh, just the, the fact we can look across this room today and we see families that are here to support them and to walk alongside them, Lord. So help us to not take those commitments lightly, but to lean into that and see that you have called us to play such a vital role in the lives of the little ones that you've placed around us. Father, we, we know in this room today we have people that are carrying around weights and, and difficulties and challenges. People that are, have heavy hearts because of, of, of challenges that ha have happened just this week. And so, Father, we pray for each of those families. We pray for those unspoken prayers. Lord, we lift up uh, the Rhodes family, and we lift up um, Sam Rhodes' cousins, Adam and Julie, as their little one, baby Eliza, passed away this week. And, Lord, it's such a heart-breaking situation, Lord. Uh, little Eliza was in the NICU for so many months, and so, Father, we pray that you wrap your loving arms around Adam and Julie and the entire family, that you give them peace and that you give them comfort and you give them that peace that Paul says in Philippians 4 that surpasses all understanding. That doesn't even make sense right now, but that you give that to them and they know that that is your presence with them. 
Father, I want to pray for my grandpa, Lindy Tarwater. Uh, Lord, he's uh, nearing the end of his life and has uh, congestive heart failure. And uh, Lord, he just uh, knows that uh, maybe just a couple weeks away. And, and his prayer is that he wants to go home. He's ready to go home. And so, Lord, I pray for my grandma, Margaret. I pray for, for my family, uh, Lord, that you comfort everyone as uh, we know grandpa knows where he's going. He knows you and he loves you. And his eternal home is waiting. And Jesus is waiting with his arms stretched out to say, welcome home. And so, for, Lord, we pray for that. Lord, we, we, we pray for those that, uh, that have loved ones who are sick and have lost loved ones this past year. And we ask that you give them comfort and peace, Lord, and in this rocky, difficult time to keep their eyes on you. So, Father, as we open up your word today, help enlighten us, help stir up our, our affections and our hearts for Jesus. And that when we leave today, we look more like Jesus than when we came. And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Now, this is an interesting text in James chapter 2. If you're familiar with this text, you know it is some of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. Because James is talking about faith, but he's adding something alongside. He's talking about works. He, he, he's talking about that there being faith and works together. And if you read this in a vacuum, it can sound like James is saying that we need to do something to have faith. That we need to do something to be saved. You know, if, if you look around at all major world religion or every false gospel, there's always something involved that has to do with doing something. There's a work involved. There's an activity involved. You talk about Eastern thought. It's karma. It's right. You, you know, if you do something bad in this life, it's going to come back to get you later, right? It's kind of a, a, scary, a scary idea. Walking on eggshells. If you look at, um, say, Islam, you've got the five pillars of Islam, how about the Catholic Church? You've got the seven sacraments of the church. And in American church culture, we have this moralistic, therapeutic, deistic view that says, well, I have to do a certain thing for God to, to love me. Or if I do enough good, then God will accept me, right? If I'm more good than I'm bad, then God's going to let me in. So when you read James' words here, you, and he says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, you wonder, Okay, so James is saying there's something we need to add to this. And we pull out our pencil and we say, I knew it. I knew it was too good to be true. I knew it couldn't be just faith. It had to be faith plus something else. And so James tells this to us. And we pull out our pens ready to add to the list. What do I need to know? Yet, this should jump out at you. Because if you've been a part of Forefront for a while, you, you know we are always saying over and over again that we aren't saved because of something that we've done. We are saved because of something that God has done for us. That we aren't saved by our effort or we aren't saved because we've earned God's favor, because we've done enough good, we've done more good than we've done bad. We are saved because Jesus came and traded places with us, amen? That we are saved because God loved us first. That when we were unlovable, God loved us. God loved us in our mess, that he stepped down. God's not telling us to climb the mountain to him. God came down the mountain to us. And so when we read verses like James, it jumps out at us. It should. And it should lead us, cause us to lean in and say, James, what do you mean? Because this seems a little bit opposite of what we read other places in the Bible. Like this, Ephesians chapter 2. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this. He says, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith, right? By grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of what? Works. Not a result 
of works so that no one may boast. See, Paul is telling us that everything that needed to happen for you to have a good, the right relationship with God, everything that needed to happen for you to be forgiven of your sins, everything that needed to happen for you to walk in the newness of life that Jesus came to bring has already been done for you. All you have to do is believe. And that's good news. That is really good news. So we come across verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul says this. He says, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's nothing we did. It's nothing we earned. It's nothing we worked for. All a gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 So there is not something that we have to do. Our faith, is, our faith is based on a belief of who Jesus is, and we didn't do anything to earn it. But then we mix in James, and we read the words of James, and we have to try to figure out how do we reconcile the two. So here's what we say. Here's, here's what we say. Our faith isn't based on what we do. Our faith is based on what Jesus has done. Right? It's not what we do, it's what Jesus has done. And so we bring James in and we say, okay, James, well, how does this fit? How do we reconcile what you're saying? Is it a contradiction? How does it make sense? Which one is it? Is it faith alone or is it faith plus works? And here's what the Bible says, it's both. Chew on that for a second. Like, how does it work? It is both. See, what James is doing is he's complimenting Paul. He's not contradicting Paul. James is, is saying that, that genuine faith is characterized by works. The genuine faith, the outworking of your faith and your salvation is seen by the demonstration of what you do. So Paul is talking about what happens when you're saved. James is talking about what happens after you're saved. Does that make sense? Saved by faith, faith through grace. But after you're saved, your faith is seen in your works. Your faith is seen in how you live. Your faith is seen in what you do. Notice how Paul ends Ephesians 2, chapter 10. He says this, for we are his workmanship. Remember, say, by grace through faith, not unto ourselves, nothing that we've done. We can't boast. Why? Because we are his workmanship. Notice, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. So good works don't lead to your faith, your salvation. Good works are the result of your salvation, a result of your faith. If you got it, say you got it. Got it. All right, so saved by grace through faith, seen by works of faith. So as we dive into what James says here real quick and try to make sense of how this thing kind of really flows together so we can ask that question, God, is my faith real? God, is my faith alive? God, is my faith genuine and authentic? I think we need to define a couple terms. So when James talks about faith and works, what is he talking about? So I think a really uh, easy way to, to define this is to say this. What is faith? Faith is trusting God and seeking to obey God. So faith is, is a belief and a trust in who God is and what he says and how he tells us to live. And it's this desire to obey that. Now, we'll never do it perfectly. Right? We'll, we'll never be 100% in this. You know, just this week, anybody just nail it? Anybody just like look at the Ten Commandments and say, all ten, I got it. Nailed it this week. If, you, if that's you, then check off liar, right? Already failed, right? There's no way that we're going to just nail them all, all the time. We'll never do it perfectly. But question is, do we have the heart to do it perfectly? Do, or do we have the heart to try? 
right? Do we have the heart to obey? And God, this is what you want me to do, and this is what you want me to be. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to fall short a lot, but I'm going to try to do my best as often as I can. So that's faith. It's just trusting God and seeking to obey him. But what about works? You know, we could say, well, what are works? And we could almost give like this laundry list of works, like all these different things, boom, 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 boom. But I think a simple way to define works is this. Works are actions of loving, are the actions of loving God and loving people. So how that looks in your life is going to be different. It's going to be different in the, in the phase of life. It's going to be different what you're doing, how you're doing it. But it's the, pour, the pouring out of my faith is I'm loving God and the things that I do to love God. And I'm loving other people in that same way. So that, that's kind of a, a good way to think about works. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not the law. It's how I love God and how I love other people. So here's James' point. James' point is this, that saving faith, saving faith works. That faith alone saves us, but a saving faith is a faith that works. And a faith that does not produce works is deceitful, and it's deceiving us. So the way you can tell if your faith is real or fake is by looking at what you do. Look back at verse 14. He says this again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then notice the example he gives us. He says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So here's what James is saying. He's saying that faith, real faith, is active. That when we have a real faith, that real faith doesn't just sit on the sidelines. That real faith is active. It does something as a response of what God has done in our hearts to us. About 10 years ago, a guy by the name of Toronto Mike, it's a good name, Toronto Mike, went through every catalog of every song ever produced and was trying to identify how many songs have love in the title, right? How many songs have love in the title? What do you guess? Just somebody throw out a number. What do you guess? How many songs have love in the title. This is as, to, as far uh, as 2011. 100? 500? 2,000? That's good. It was 1,187, right? And that was as of 2011. So in the last 10 years, we probably got, what, a couple hundred more to that mix? A lot of songs with love in the title. Maybe one of the famous ones was sang by your buddy John Lennon, right? All we need is love, right? Now, you go out, maybe you go down to Edgewater, Edgewater public house, you're hanging out at a Rockies game, you're going to see a lot of shirts that say that, right? All we need is love, right? Like the solution to the world's problems is loving people, loving each other. And it makes sense. And we agree, right? How do we fix the problem of the world? We need to love each other. No more hate, right? We got to stop fighting. We need to love each other. But here's the question we had to wrestle with. Why doesn't saying all we need to do is love each other work? What are we missing? Something's missing there, right? All talk and no action. See, when we say this is what we need to do, but we don't do it, we're deceiving ourselves. This is what James is getting at. This is the example that James is talking about. And in this example, he's in the context of the church. He's in the context of, of your brothers and sisters in Christ and the body of believers. Now, we can take this and extend it out, right? And this concept and, and application can apply to all of life, but he's speaking specifically of the church. He's talking about somebody you go to church with, who's sitting in the row with you, who's in your life group, and he's saying that this person is in need, 
Now, when he says poorly clothed, he's not saying that they shop at Nordstrom's rack rather than Nordstrom's, right? Or, or saying that they shop on the clearance rack at, at, at Target, right? He, he's talking about, like, this brother doesn't have anything. Like, he's got, like, one pair of jeans, and he hasn't washed them in years, right? Like, shirts tattered, just bad shape. When he says that they are hungry and they don't have anything to eat, he is not talking about somebody who's eating Kroger mac and cheese rather than Kraft mac and cheese. I mean, Kroger mac and cheese is still good, amen? I guess still pretty good. So he's not talking about those kind of things. What he's saying is this person doesn't have any money for clothes or food, and this brother or sister is in bad shape, utterly in trouble. And he's saying that you, this is somebody you're going to church with, this is somebody you're doing life with, and instead you see this person and all you say to them is blessings. Have a good day. It was awesome having lunch with you. Go on in peace, right? This phrase, go in peace, that he uses, it's a, it's a Jewish form of dismissal. And so it's just like some of us in the lobby or some of us hanging outside on the lawn later and we say, hey, it was so good to see you. Man, you look horrible and I can see you're hungry, but have a good day. Blessings. I hope it works out for you. Like, that's basically what James is saying. And James is saying, if that is the result of your faith, then what good is that? Like, like what good is your faith if that is what you do and that is what you see? You know, John, the Apostle John, he gets pretty hardcore on this and, and steps on our toes a lot if you read First John chapter 3. Notice what he says. He says this. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but love in deed and truth. So James says your faith will be seen, that your faith is active, that when you see somebody in need, your faith compels you to do something about it. And that if God has blessed you in such a way where you have the means to help, then your faith should stir you up so that you do go and help. You know, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25. There's the parable of, uh, of the sheep and the goats. And it's kind of a confusing parable sometimes, and we wonder what exactly is Jesus saying. But, but here's what Jesus says. He says there's going to be this moment at the end of your life when you're standing in front of Jesus, you're standing in front of God, and, and God is going to say, hey, those of you that, that believed and were faithful, go to the right but those of you who didn't, go to the left. And the people who go to the left are going to be like, what happened? I, I, I thought I believed. I thought I knew you, Jesus. What happened? And Jesus is going to say this. Notice this, Matthew 25, verse 44. Then they're going to say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And Jesus says this in verse 45. He says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. He said, those that truly believe in me, their faith works. Their faith pours out, is demonstrated, and it's active, and it loves other people. But those who don't, well, they just cared about themselves, and they didn't do anything to help anybody else. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty striking, and that hits us in the, in the gut, but it's meant to. Jesus wants us to get real with our faith. He wants us to be real. 
And so James and Jesus' point here is that as we experience the grace of God, our hearts should be transformed. That our, our love for God should translate into a love for other people. A, a love for other people that, that spills over because of our love for God. I like how Charles Spurgeon says it. He says this. He says that as soon as a man has found Christ, he begins to find others. So I, I think James wants us to ask the question, like when, when we see a need, what does it do inside of us? Like when we see a need, how, how does it cause us to react? Like when you see uh, maybe a brother or a sister or a friend or a family member and you see that they are in need, does anything happen in here? Or is it just kind of like, hey, good luck. Well, wish the best. Blessings. James is stepping on our toes and he wants him to hurt. And I think this is a reality for us to ask our question. We're never going to be perfect at this. But the question is, is it stirring something inside of us? Is our faith active? So James is saying real faith is active, but he also says this. Real faith is dynamic. The real faith is growing. Real faith is changing. Real faith is progressing. It's dynamic. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says this. He kind of gives us this like almost imaginary argument that he has with somebody at the church. He says, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one that you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now he's throwing the minions, the devil's minions into this. And so he's inserting this antagonist and he's giving us this kind of false conversation to help us see ourselves in this discussion. And he's saying that it's not all about just intellectual faith. There has to be a heart change. There has to be something that happens inside of us. And so James says, someone is going to say, I have my faith. I don't need, need works. And James is saying, no, your faith is actually seen by your works. You know, it, it'd be like you're, you're, you're talking to somebody and you're kind of hanging out. Maybe you're, you're, looking, out a, you're looking out at some planes and, and you might say, well, I, I, yeah, I think that plane's safe to fly in. Like, I, I, I believe that plane would get me where I need to go. And James is like, prove it. Go sit in it. Take a flight. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've seen some pretty janky planes in my day, right? Anybody else seen a plane? You're like, I'm not getting in that thing. James is saying that you want to prove your faith? You want to prove you really believe? Get in the plane. Get in the plane and let me actually see your faith in action. See, the reality is, I think a lot of us can talk theology. There's a lot of people who can can, you know, quote scripture, who can talk about what God would tell you to do in a curtain situation. But if you opened up their heart, you would see it's dry and crusty. That it's not alive. That it's not, it's not dynamic. It's not growing. It's not pumping. James would say it's dead. That there has to be something more than just intellectual assent. And so James is saying that what believers do is believers get on the plane. Believers demonstrate their faith through their action. Intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not enough. Genuine faith is seen through action. And so then he, James gives us two examples, Abraham and Rahab. And I love that he includes Rahab in this example. Notice what he says. Read, read with me here, starting in verse 20. He says this. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and that scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
Now, now James isn't talking about Abraham's salvation. He's not talking about Abraham's faith in God. What he's talking about is how Abraham showed his faith. Now, if you guys, you guys remember the story of Father Abraham? Remember? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. You guys know it? All right. Abraham had a song. That's how many descendants he had. But if you know, all the way back to Genesis 22, there's the story of Abraham, and God calls out to Abraham after Isaac was born. God had promised Abraham a son that through that son, would, the world would be blessed. There would be generations and generations of people that would be blessed because of this. That there would be, his, his family would be more, there would be more family members than the sands of the sea. And so here's Isaac, and Isaac is born. And then God calls out to Isaac, or Abraham in Genesis 22 and says, Abraham, I need you to trust me. I need you to take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And I'm sure Abraham said, what? Like, hold on, I waited 25 years for my son to be born, and now you're telling me to do what? But with hope and trust and tears, Abraham took Isaac and marched all the way to the top of Mount Moriah. And at the top of the mountain, Abraham bound his son and had a dagger in hand. And at that moment, the Spirit of the Lord cried out and said, Abraham, look, there's a ram caught in the thicket God has provided. And so to us, we read that story and we think, wow, that is just beyond what I can even imagine. Like, God, why did you test Abraham's faithfulness like that? And and it doesn't make sense to us. And it was a foreshadowing of what God would do with Jesus when God was going to send Jesus here for us. But in that moment, Abraham's faith was seen because he obeyed. Abraham trusted that even if Isaac died, that God would raise him from the dead because he believed God's promise. And so Abraham's faith was dynamic, and he listened, and he believed, and he trusted. And you know what's interesting? If you know the story of Abraham, Abraham was a mess. Abraham was a liar. Abraham was a deceiver. But after that moment of obedience and faith, Abraham's life, there was no more messing around. At that point, Abraham was on mission for God. That obedience changed Abraham's life. His faith was seen by his works. But notice he also gives us Rahab as an example. This is an, an amazing example. Look with me. I love that, that James includes Rahab in this, in this uh, scripture here. Look with me, verse 25 and 26. And he says this, in the same way, talking about Abraham's faith, how it was seen through his obedience, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, if you guys know the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab didn't have a song, right? There's no song about Rahab. <laughs> Rahab was not in a very good place. Like, Rahab was living in Jericho, which was a terrible pagan place. And Rahab did not have a very good job. Like, you don't, you know, little girls in Jericho probably didn't wake up and go, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to that line of work because, you know, I think it's really going to help my family. Like, Evil, terrible, wicked things happen to someone to lead them to that place. And here is Rahab living as a prostitute in a pagan place in Jericho. And she hears that the people of God are moving, that the people of God are coming towards them. And she sees Joshua's spies when they come into the city to scout out Jericho. And she sees them, and word gets out that the cops are on their tail. And so she brings them into her home and hides them and then helps them get out of the city. And she says this to them in Joshua chapter 2. 
Rahab says, hey, when your God takes this city, remember me. See, she believed. She believed in God, and her faith was demonstrated and seen by the way she responded. And she responded in action. And this is what James is telling us. That the way that our faith is seen is it's demonstrated by our works. You can talk all you want about your faith. You can say you believe and you can say you trust and you can talk theology all day long. But until you actually demonstrate your belief by the way you live and the things that you do, you have to ask the question, is your faith actually real? Do my actions show that I'm growing in my love for God? And because of my love for God, it's spilling out and growing in my love for other people. And forefront, this is where it should hit us in, in the gut a little bit. And this should step on our toes a little bit. Because the church in America is full of people who say, I believe. And the church in America is full of people who say, I trust in Jesus as my Savior. But then the church of, uh, in America is full of people who aren't living it and aren't showing it. And the watching world is going, see, look, it's all talk and it's no walk. So James is trying to step on our toes to get us to wake up and ask that question. Is my faith real? Is my faith dynamic? Is my faith making a difference? Because James says that when your faith is real, your faith is alive. That your faith is alive. Real faith is alive. Notice how he ends this whole section in verse 26. He gives us one last picture he says this, verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He says real faith is alive. And the picture is a body without its spirit. And a body without a spirit is just a body. It's bones and it's ligaments and tendons, but there's no heartbeat. It's dead. And James says, is your faith like that? Or is your faith alive? I like how Rich Mullins says it. He says this. He says, faith without works is like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. See, here's what I want us to take away this morning. We take away anything from what James has for us here in chapter 2. It's this, that all the commands of the Bible, all the words of Jesus, all the shouts and the shout nots, all the do's and the do-nots are all meant for us to be brought into a deeper relationship with God. All are meant for us to walk into a fullness of life, a richness in what God has created us for and how he has created us to live. But the reality is we will never experience that life. Our life will be dry and our life will feel like it's lacking meaning and will feel like it has no purpose unless we get real faith. Unless we get real with our faith. Because as long as you believe that faith is this intellectual thing, this mental ascent, or as long as you believe that you have to do something to earn God's love, you will never experience that peace and the delight that God created us to walk in. That peace and the delight that comes from knowing God. That peace and delight that comes from being forgiven of your sins, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. That peace and delight that comes from knowing that you have a friend of God, that God actually likes you, right? That God loves you and gave his life for you. But that peace and delight will never be ours as long as we're trying to get it or we think that it's all on us. 
You know, when, when my uh, oldest daughter, Emma, was little, she's nine now. When she was little, we took her to the pool. And she was probably like, I don't know, a year and a half, big enough to kind of j- jump in. You know, and I'm standing there like, okay, okay, Emma, jump in. And you could tell she was scared to death. Like, she didn't want to go. She knew the water was cold, she could tell. And, and no matter that I'm standing there or not, she didn't want to jump in. And I'm in the pool going, the moment you jump in, you're going to fall in love with the pool, right? The moment you jump in, you're never going to want to get out which is true. Like she, I haven't been able to get her out since. But in that moment, she wouldn't get in. And I'm sitting there going, jump, trust me, trust me. And like, like have I ever just like let you fall before? Like, seriously, I'm going to catch you. Hey, come on. She jumps in. What does she do? She falls in love with the pool. She never wants to get out. And that's what God's saying to us. He's saying, trust me, jump in. I'm going to catch you. I'm right here every time. But you got to have real faith and trust me. And step in because when you do, you're going to experience that peace and that delight, and you're never going to want to get out. See, some of us in here today, we feel like our faith is dry, like we're in a dry place. We feel like a plant is being scorched by the sun, and this last year and a half has been so hard on us, and we just feel like there's no growth, that we're dying, that we're not alive, there's no progress, and we just feel stuck and we're frustrated. And I think what God is calling you to do today is to position yourself under the waterfall of his grace. Because if you want to be, come alive and to be given fresh life that he comes to give, then we have to come and sit at the feet of Jesus. And we have to gaze on his goodness and his grace and his love and his mercy. And that's the importance of gathering together in the church. That's the importance of opening the word of God. That's the importance of prayer. That's the importance of Christian community. These aren't works. This isn't the fruit of our faith. This is how we fuel our faith. It's in these ways that we position ourselves under the waterfall of his grace so that my love for him grows and then it pours out into a love for other people. I I don't know about you guys, but the more time I spend with my wife and kids, the more my love for them grows, the more I want to be around them. You know, if me and my wife, Courtney, don't see each other for a week, it's really easy for us to argue about who packed a dishwasher wrong. Anybody ever unpacked a dishwasher and repacked it? Yeah, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. But I mean, seriously, you don't see each other all week. It's easy to get into these things. But when you spend time daily, you start to see how God is growing and changing and shaping and you love it even more and more. And there's like this inexhaustible well and you want to spend more time. That's what it's like when we position ourselves under the waterfall of God's grace. The more we spend, the more time we spend with God, the more we realize that God is an inexhaustible well of grace, mercy, and love. And so James is saying to us, check your faith. How are you living? Do you see evidence of your faith in the way that you live? Notice what he says, and I'm going to close with this. At the end of James chapter 1, he says this. He says, so be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But, notice verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by his doing. James says something happens when you lift your gaze on Jesus and you stare at the law of liberty, which is the good news that Jesus came and stepped out of heaven 
and came here to this earth for you so that he could take your place and that he could set you on the path to life, a path to a deepness and a fullness that you could never experience anywhere else. But we have to, to keep our eyes on him because that leads to a real faith, that leads to an active faith, that leads to a growing dynamic faith. See, forefront, here, here's what I want us to leave with is this, that Jesus has called us in to play a part in the greatest story ever told. And that there is someone in this church, there's someone in your neighborhood or in your workplace or in your family or in your community that Jesus wants to work through you to change their future, to change their life, to set them on the path for good but for us to be the people he's called us to be, we have to examine our hearts and say, am I living the way Jesus has called me to live? And can you see my faith through my actions? There was a story of a small church in a, in a rural community, and it was a drought, and there was no water for, for weeks, and it was very agricultural, and the, and the crops weren't, weren't doing well. And so the pastor of the small church says to the community, hey, everybody come in, we're going to pray for rain. And so they say, hey, Saturday at 10, everybody come over. We're going to pray for rain. And Saturday at 10, people start flooding in. They start flooding into the, in, into the, the, the pews, and they, and they sit down, and, they, and the pastor steps up to the front, and he looks. And on the very front row, there's a little girl with an umbrella in her hand. He said, we're going to pray for rain. She came ready for it to rain. Front front, when we step into this. We see that God has called us into something bigger than ourselves, something more beautiful than ourselves. It's not just a faith that God can do it. It's a faith that he will. A living faith, an active faith, a real faith is a faith that works. And just imagine how God can use us to change the world when we work together. Let's pray.